Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Well, folks, this is the final episode of 2019, and it has been a year. Wow. We started off the year with a new Congress, and I predicted that the Democrats would probably impeach Donald Trump. However, I thought the impeachment would be over the Mueller report, not over Ukraine. Definitely didn't see that coming, that's for sure. But here we are. The president of the United States has been impeached for only the third time in history. It's pretty, pretty momentous. And um, what a way not only to end the year, but the to end this decade. Um, I, I don't know, maybe just because I'm caught up in all the political stuff, I haven't really given much thought to the fact that it's the end of another decade. Like time is flying. Like 2009 doesn't seem like it was all that long ago, but we are now through the teens of the 21st century. It's crazy. It's just weird, but that's where we are. And, um, I just want to say that I'm thankful. I just want to thank all my listeners and the people who have supported the podcast for the last year. Thank you so much. We will be continuing the podcast, I will, uh, in the new year. But just letting everybody know that uh, this is the last, last podcast for the year, and I'll be picking it back up in January. So, um, impeachment. Well, you know, I mean... How do I feel about it? Well, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, Am I glad that Donald Trump is impeached? Yeah, he more than deserves it. Is it like a celebration, though? I'm not so sure. You know, it it kind of it's messed up. It's not for the, you know, for the history of our country, the republic. It's just, you know, it's a sad day. You don't want to see the nuclear option used, which is basically what impeachment is. But when a president abuses his power you have, you're left with no choice. My guest last week, historian Tim Naftali said it's a safety valve and it's true. And we really have reached a point of critical mass. Donald Trump has done a lot of things that are constitutionally questionable. His, his list of transgressions is long and it's about time things finally caught up to him. So on this week's episode, I have two guests uh, reporter Philip Bump. He's the national correspondent for the Washington Post. And I talk a little Giuliani with him because I don't want that story to get lost in all of the, everything else that's going on. I think we need to pay attention to what the hell Rudy Giuliani has been doing because um, it's not over. And a lot of the, the Ukraine mess is because of Giuliani and his exploits. So Philip Bump is joining me to talk a little Giuliani. And then I also have a law professor, Jennifer Taub, who is um, going to talk a little bit about what she thinks is going on and, and her perspective on on the impeachment stuff. So good conversation. Um, I, I really, you know, I just have impeachment fatigue, so I'm not going to go on and on about it. <laughs> I think if you've been paying attention, you've heard all the arguments on both sides. I'm just going to talk a little about some of my observations. Um, I think that the American people are just over it and it's the holidays. People have 
their families and the holidays to celebrate and they're only kind of half watching and there really hasn't been much movement in polling concerning impeachment, which I just think it just goes to the fact that people are, they're just, it's, they're overwhelmed because the evidence is clear against Donald Trump and what he did. It really is. But the Republicans have done a very good job with the aiding and abetting of Fox News and the president's Twitter feed of muddying the waters and confusing people and really just flat out lying. I I just cannot get over how intellectually dishonest the Republican Party has become. Every last one of them. The arguments that they put forward in the hours upon hours of the Rules Committee and the Judiciary Committee and then the floor debate, they're all specious arguments not based on the evidence. And to hear each Republican repeat them over and over again, it's good messaging. They're very good at that. They didn't deviate from it. And social repetition creates reality. You learn that in marketing classes and in, in uh, persuasion and debate classes, whether it's true or not doesn't matter. It's how well you, you can sell it and how many times you repeat it, right? You repeat a lie enough, people will believe it finally. And that's the tactic that Republicans are using. That's what Donald Trump does. And they kept repeating things over and over again that were demonstrably false, that had been disproven through testimony by witnesses under oath, and uh, in a couple podcasts ago, I gave people a guide to some of those things and how to combat them, right? Right before Thanksgiving. And it's the same thing. Ukraine wasn't pressured. Zelensky said said so. Philip Bump addresses this. It was clear that the Ukraine knew. And actually, since the last time, more evidence has come out. There's, there's a bunch of WhatsApp um, text messages that show Ukraine officials were aware that the money was being held, withheld way sooner than they admitted publicly. So this nonsense about Zelensky didn't feel pressure and they didn't know the money was being held, it's nonsense, it's not true. And the Republicans know that. The money got released anyway. We already know that the money was released after the whistleblower complaint went public and Congress was aware of it. So they had to. There was a deadline of September 30th anyway because it was congressionally approved money. So if they didn't release the money, it gets lost. It doesn't go anywhere. So the, the Trump administration had to. They got caught. So that's out the window. The process arguments. Bullshit again, because Trump was given the opportunity to bring his counsel and to testify himself if he wanted to in front of the Judiciary Committee. So the due process argument was bullshit. They had the opportunity to do it. They chose not to. The idea that the witnesses, nobody firsthand... The White House wouldn't allow Pompeo, Mulvaney, Giuliani, or Perry, or Bolton to testify. So, uh, you know, take Giuliani out of that because that's a whole other story. But the, the, the top four, and that's who Chuck Schumer is trying to push for in the Senate trial, to have them come and testify. But Mitch McConnell's not being cooperative. He already said he's not going to be an impartial juror. And Lindsey Graham said the same thing. So we're at a weird like impasse here with the with the Senate and what they're going to do. But witnesses could be called in the Senate. Now, the difference between this impeachment and what happened with Clinton is that most of those witnesses 
they'd already testified under oath, either in person or on video with depositions. So that's why they didn't really call any new witnesses in the Clinton and impeachment trial because it had already been done and the Ken Starr report had already been written. So the process of that was different than this time. So the, the, the Republicans just whining and bitching constantly about the process. I, I wanted to rip my hair out. I was so tired of hearing the same arguments over and over again when they know that the, that the president has refused to cooperate in the process. So that's a bunch of BS too. Then, and the fact that the president keeps going on and on about it was a perfect call. I, I gotta tell you, I'm surprised how many Republicans jumped on that bandwagon when they know it wasn't a perfect call. They know that it was problematic. Mick Mulvaney admitted why they held the money up, which was a corrupt, a corrupt intent. He didn't say it that way, but he said, well, well, yeah, he was worried about crowd strike and the Bidens. And that's why we held up the money. I mean, it's all really there in plain sight. So the Republican arguments, if you just listened to the difference in the disposition between the way the Democrats presented their arguments and the way Republicans did shouting hysterical, like all the histrionics and, and the kabuki theater of it all. Ridiculous, ridiculous. But that's how you sound when you can't present real evidence and you can't debate the actual facts. So it's over with now. I mean, there were so many people who I was just so disappointed with and how they behaved throughout this whole process. One of the biggest disappointments I have to admit was Will Hurd. Will Hurd is retiring. He's the only black member of the Republicans in the House. He's a former CIA officer. Will Hurd is a reasonable, smart guy. He knows good and hell damn well the threat that Donald Trump poses, not only to the Constitution, but national security. Okay, he knows. But for whatever reason, I don't know. I'm sure we'll find out one day. He's decided he's going to still toe the party line. Terribly disappointing coming from Will Hurd. He tried to say there wasn't enough evidence. He didn't hear enough. Bullshit, Will Hurd. Okay, stop it. So he was a huge disappointment. Louis Gohmert has just really gone off the deep end lately. And there was something that happened if anyone who watched the debates, I mean, it happened all day. So if you have a job, obviously you're not watching this unless you're watching C-SPAN at work <laughs> or maybe CNN because they, they carried it live. But Louis Gohmert went on the House floor during the impeachment vote debate before they voted and actually recited Russian propaganda talking points, blaming Ukraine uh, and all kinds of things. And it was insane. I'm like, what, what does the government, what is the, what do the Russians have on these people? I just don't, I don't understand it. But anyway, well, Jerry Nadler, when he reclaimed his time, he rebuked Gomert for what he said, mentioned that what he, what he talked about in his speech was Russian propaganda BS basically. And Louis Gohmert confronted Jerry Nadler. He confronted him on the House floor and like started screaming. And the House was out of order. And the chair was like, the House will come to order. And there was like a confrontation. Really, Louis Gohmert? I just don't understand these Republicans that want to die on this Russian propaganda hill. For what? To pledge fealty to Trump because they're worrying about losing an election? What about their oath of office? It's just, it's the world turns upside down. I've said this many times. I was lamenting that with a fellow never Trumper friend of mine who will remain nameless, who was telling me that he just 
cannot sit back and let this go, that he has to continue to speak out because this is insane. <laughs> I'm like, I know. Even his kids know it. Um, but some other people who, I mean, the list was long of how the asinine Republicans, just their antics. I mean, Jim Jordan yelling out constantly, Doug Collins sounding like some kind of auctioneer every time he talked. You know, I mean, I get it. You're from Georgia. You have a Southern accent. But really, dude, just because you're yelling and talking fast, that's supposed to what? Add to the drama of it all? You sound like a freaking auctioneer. You sound like a jackass. And half the time, he didn't make any sense anyway. And more times than not, what he was saying wasn't even true. They were flat out lies. And they knew it. So what's uh, a couple of highlights? Actually, let, let me say who who I thought really stood out. I mean, there were a bunch of Democratic members who gave powerful speeches and good for them. I'm so sick and tired of these Republicans putting out these petulant arguments that it's just because you don't like the president. It's because they hate Donald Trump and you're all sore losers. And stop this, okay? This is not, this is serious business. Impeachment is serious. This is not some schoolyard, elementary school uh, plot to get back at someone, okay? This isn't mean girls. It's serious. And I think that most of the Democrats, the majority, overwhelming majority of them, took this very seriously. They took the evidence. They cited constitutional uh, documentation, the Federalist Papers. They, you know, come on. Meanwhile, Republicans are screaming, you just don't like him. No, this is way beyond not just not liking someone. It's insulting, actually. Like we as grown adults, people who are in you know positions of power, but they're just being vindictive because they don't like someone. No, that's not how that worked this time around. And there were a lot of courageous Democrats who, who were in swing Trump districts that were freshmen who won in, in the midterms, who took a chance and said, no, you know what? Our oath of office is more important than getting reelected we're going to vote to impeach and we will explain it to our constituents because this is what comes first. Good for them. We'll see what happens next time, next year, but good for them. More courage than any of those wussy ass Republicans who know better that decided to die on this hill and try to justify what Donald Trump did. Oh, he didn't do anything wrong. Okay. Right. So I think Adam Schiff, if you get a chance, Google Adam Schiff's um, speech. He broke the whole thing down. He's very good at that. He broke it down in nine minutes, less than 10 minutes, broke the whole thing down, why it matters, the evidence and the obligation, the constitutional obligation we have to support the impeachment. Steny Hoyer, who is the majority leader, he's the number two under Nancy Pelosi. Steny Hoyer has been around forever and you don't really see him much. Like he doesn't talk much, but I have to say that his speech right before the vote last night was phenomenal. He brought up the Nixon impeachment and the courage that the Republicans had then to break their break with the party, break with the president when they knew that enough was enough. And he listed them, including Larry Hogan senior, who was the father of the current governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan jr. Republican and others who said enough is enough. We can't, you know, we can't let Nixon get away with this. Where were those, where was the courage of those Republicans this time around? Nowhere to be found, not one. And the only one who had any courage to stand up after the Mueller report came out was Justin Amash from Michigan. 
And he had to leave the Republican Party and become an independent in order to do it. But I think it's important to listen to what Justin Amash had to say in his two minutes on the floor. Let's take a listen. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I rise today in support of these articles of impeachment. I come to this floor not as a Democrat, not as a Republican, but as an American who cares deeply about the Constitution, the rule of law, and the rights of the people. Under our system of government, impeachment is not about policy disagreements or ineffective governance, nor is it about criminality based on statutes that did not exist at the time our Constitution was written. Impeachment is about maintaining the integrity of the office of the presidency and ensuring that executive power is directed toward proper ends in accordance with the law. The Constitution grants the House the sole power of impeachment and the Senate the sole power to try all impeachments. We in the House are empowered to charge impeachable conduct. The Constitution describes such conduct as high crimes and misdemeanors because it pertains to high office and relates to the misuse of that office. We need not rely on any other branch or body to endorse our determinations. We have the sole power of impeachment. In Federalist Number 65, Alexander Hamilton wrote that high crimes and misdemeanors, quote, are those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may, with peculiar propriety, be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself, end quote. President Donald J. Trump has abused and violated the public trust by using his high office to solicit the aid of a foreign power, not for the benefit of the United States of America, but instead for his personal and political gain. His actions reflect precisely the type of conduct the framers of the Constitution intended to remedy through the power of impeachment, and it is our duty to impeach him. I yield back. Amen to that. Justin Amash is 100% right. It is their duty. He quoted Hamilton, who was quite uh, popular throughout this. Both sides quoted different parts of Hamilton's uh, writings on this. Federalist 65, Federalist 68. Uh, Hamilton had a lot to say about impeachment. But the most important thing is that he said that the high crimes and misdemeanors thing, it was about violating public trust, not about criminal offenses. You didn't even have half the criminal statutes you have now back then in 1789. Okay, so the high crimes and misdemeanors thing refers to violation of public trust, which is the point that Justin Amash made. And also there were 700 historians who signed a letter explaining that they believed 100% that the Democrats were within their right to push for this impeachment and, and vote for it. Not just the Democrats, just in general, that they believed that impeachment was warranted here based on Donald Trump's behavior. And I want to read from that letter because they're smarter than I am when it comes to constitutional stuff uh, and history, because they're historians. But this was the letter, and it's nothing to sneeze at. 700 historians signed on to this. This was right before the vote, a couple days before the vote. 
We are American historians devoted to studying our nation's past who have concluded that Donald J. Trump has violated his oath to, quote, faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and to, quote, preserve, protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. His attempts to subvert the Constitution, as George Mason described impeachable offenses at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, urgently and justly require his impeachment. President Trump's numerous and flagrant abuses of power are precisely what the framers had in mind as grounds for impeaching and removing a president. Among those most hurtful to the Constitution have been his attempts to coerce the country of Ukraine under attack from Russia, an adversary power to the United States, by withholding essential military assistance in exchange for the fabrication and legitimization of false information in order to advance his own re-election. Here's the key part. President Trump's lawless obstruction of the House of Representatives, which is rightly seeking documents and witness testimony in pursuit of its constitutionally mandated oversight role, has demonstrated brazen contempt for representative government. So have his, so have his attempts to justify that obstruction on the grounds that, exe- that the executive enjoys, quote, absolute immunity, a fictitious doctrine that, if tolerated, would turn the president into an elected monarch above the law. That's important because that's Article 2. Article 1 is abuse of power. Article 2 is obstruction of Congress, which is really important because we have separation of powers. And you can't just have the president of the United States thinking that the Article 2, I mean the Constitution Article 2, just gives the power, gives unlimited power to the president of the United States. That's what he thinks in his mind. He even said that at one point. Article 2, I can do whatever I want. No. No, that's why this ignoring subpoenas, obstructing Congress, the oversight role that's given to them in the Constitution was so uh, egregious. And that's why it's included in the impeachment. Here's the last part. More Hamilton. As Alexander Hamilton wrote in The Federalist, impeachment was designated, I'm sorry, impeachment was designed to deal with the, quote, misconduct of public men, which includes, quote, the abuse or violation of some public trust. Collectively, the president's offenses, including his dereliction in protecting the integrity of the 2020 election from Russian disinformation and renewed interference, arose once again the framers' most profound fears that powerful members of government would become, in Hamilton's words, the mercenary instruments of foreign corruption. It is our considered judgment that if President Trump's misconduct does not rise to the level of impeachment, then virtually nothing does. Hamilton understood, as he wrote in 1792, that the Republic remained vulnerable to the rise of an unscrupulous demagogue, quote, unprincipled in private life, desperate in his fortune, bold in his temper, possessed of considerable talents, despotic in his ordinary demeanor. (laughs) So wise back then. That demagogue, Hamilton said, could easily manage to, quote, mount the hobby horse of popularity, to join in the cry of danger to liberty, and to take every opportunity of embarrassing the general government and bringing it under suspicion, to flatter and fall with all the nonsense of the zealots of the day. 
I tell you, I know that the that the Federalist Papers are probably not like exciting reading, but reading Hamilton and plus I mentioned last week how I saw the play while I was in London. I'm all about Hamilton right now, and it's really fascinating how prescient and in just what a genius our founding fathers were. Wow. Just geniuses. Such a figure, Hamilton wrote, would throw things into confusion that he may ride the storm and direct the whirlwind. If that's not what's happening today, it's just unbelievable. It's amazing. President Trump's actions committed before and during the House investigations fit Hamilton's description and manifest under and deliberate scorn for the rule of law and repeated injuries to constitutional democracy. That disregard continues and it constitutes a clear and present danger to the Constitution. We therefore strongly urge the House of Representatives to impeach the president. That letter was signed by 700 historians. I'm just going to let that speak for itself. You know, that's where we are. And that's why we did what we did. That's why, I mean, I didn't do anything. I'm not a member of Congress yet. (laughs) But I mean, those of us who supported it. That's why it was done. And shame on the Senate if they don't do a fair and impartial trial, which is what is called uh, upon them what's next right a lot of people want to know well what happens now well you know the constitution's a little vague about the specifics of how to run an impeachment trial but in the 1980s the senate wrote up some rules talk a little bit about that with jen Tobb, um later on but it outlines some things but for the most part the senate gets to kind of dictate how whether they're going to have witnesses who they're going to be how much time Um, And it only needs a simple majority vote to approve those rules. So right now there's a battle, political battle between Chuck Schumer, the Senate minority leader, the Democrat, and Mitch McConnell, who, you know, Republicans run the Senate. And Mitch McConnell is just basically, he's not even trying to appear fair or impartial, unlike what happened with the Clinton impeachment, where you had Tom Daschle and um, was it, was it, uh, uh, what's his name? Why is his name escaping me now? The Republican back then. It was Dashiell and Trent Lott. Trent Lott from Mississippi. The Republican back during the Clinton impeachment. They came together in a bipartisan fashion because they were institutionalists. They respected the institution of the Senate and they took their responsibility very seriously. That's not happening now. That's the difference. And Republicans used to be the institutionalists. I don't know what happened, but well, Donald Trump happened and As my friend Wilson says, everything Trump touches dies. So that's what we're waiting on. Um, I asked my two guests whether they think Nancy Pelosi is going to report the articles of impeachment over to the Senate and how long she's going to hold on to them for, because she doesn't have to report them to the Senate, but the Senate can't move forward until she does. She's contemplating not reporting those articles because of how Mitch McConnell's behaving. She wants to get more of a fair trial she thinks she has some kind of leverage I'm not so sure about that I don't know if that's necessarily a tactic that's going to work but that's what's happening and then once they make that decision then the house will uh, Nancy Pelosi will choose the managers so these are basically like the prosecutors she'll choose hers the Republicans will choose theirs uh, last time I believe there were 13 during the Clinton impeachment because you know we really don't have much precedent Nixon was never actually impeached he resigned he had enough sense to resign but they drew the articles up, they voted them out of the Judiciary Committee, but they never went to the House floor. 
So we only have Andrew Johnson in 1868 and Bill Clinton to go by. So that's what we're going to stay tuned for and we'll see. But I got to tell you that um, listening to Republicans say the things they said, and then guess who else said similar things? Vladimir Putin. Putin has an end of the year press conference in Russia, and he's actually defending Donald Trump from Moscow. He actually said, Trump was impeached on completely contrived grounds, just a continuation of domestic infighting by Democrats who lost the election. First, they accused Trump of colluding with Russia, now of pressuring Ukraine. Sound familiar? For God's sakes. You know, there's a Politico Politico uh, article from 2017 called How the GOP Became Putin's Party. Google it. It's pretty amazing how much money, Russian money, has been poured into Republican um, campaign coffers from different sources and different things. Um, you know, I just it's it's just pretty unbelievable. But yeah, so we got Vladimir Putin now defending Donald Trump. Tells you all you need to know. And lastly, before I bring in Philip Bump uh, to talk more about Russians, <laughs> like uh, what Giuliani's doing over in Ukraine and the Russians he's running around with, I have to say something about Donald Trump and his rallies. He had a rally this week at the exact same time as the impeachment vote was happening. He was in Michigan. It was a two-hour, frantic, insane rant. He was all sweaty. He was an unusually darker color than normal. I mean, it was a hot mess, literally. And he said so many crazy things. And I always say, follow Daniel Dale, who is our fact checker at CNN on uh, Twitter. I think it's at D Dale, D-A-L-E. He does yeoman's work. He catalogs all of Trump's speeches and rallies and fact checks them in real time. And it's amazing how many falsehoods and lies and just crazy shit that Trump says during these things. He went particularly ugly last night, which was not not to be not any surprise because he was being impeached and he's freaking out over it. He's been tweeting incessantly and retweeting all kinds of crazy stuff. But he actually went after Representative De- Debbie Dingell, who is from Michigan, whose husband, John Dingell, was the longest serving member of Congress in history. He passed away earlier this year. He left Congress a couple years ago and Debbie Dingell won his seat and has been representing his seat since then. And he's beloved in Michigan. Now, remember, Donald Trump only won Michigan by 11,000 votes. That's not a lot. He is in Michigan and and went after John Dingell because Debbie Dingell said that she was going to vote in favor of impeachment. And when John Dingell died, he got, you know, the royal treatment. He got the flags and, he, and I think he lied in state in um in the capital which are things that the president has to approve but these are pretty much pro forma i mean you don't say no i mean john dingle's a world war ii veteran he's buried in arlington he was a democrat but he was a public servant an honorable one and trump made a comment that was just really so low class typical of him where he implied that 
you know, he, that, that Debbie Dingle basically begged him, was whimpering. Um, actually, I'll just, I'm just going to play it. Debbie Dingle, that's a real beauty. So she calls me up like eight months ago. Her husband was here a long time. But I didn't give him the B treatment. I didn't give him the C or the D. I could have. Nobody would have, you know. I gave the A-plus treatment. Take down the flags. She calls me up. It's the nicest thing that's ever happened. Thank you so much. John would be so thrilled. He's looking down. He'd be so thrilled. Thank you so much, sir. I said, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Maybe he's looking up. I don't know. Maybe he's looking up, implying that John Dingle might be in hell looking up. What the? Oh, my God. I just I just can't. I really can't. Trump just has a problem with statesmen, with people of honor. You know, he just because he's so dishonorable and such a cretin, miscreant, cheater, charlatan, liar, draft dodger that he just can't handle people who lived honorable lives of service. Debbie Dingell's response, she she responded on Twitter. She was also on CNN talking about it. But on Twitter, she said, Mr. President, let's set politics aside. My husband earned all of his accolades after a lifetime of service. I'm preparing for the first holiday season without the man I love. You brought me down in a way you could never imagine. And your hurtful words just made my healing much harder. I mean, you know, she's a class act, but unnecessary, just unnecessarily, unnecessarily punching down the president. But that's who he is. That's who he is. He's dishonorable. He's a he's a disgrace. And this is the person that, by the way, during the floor debate, a bunch of Republicans, more than one, compared Trump's persecution to Jesus, for goodness sakes. Yeah. Congressman Lodermilk said that Pontius Pilate gave more due process to Jesus than Trump and Democrats. Stop this. Really? This is your savior, people? Come on. It's so infuriating. Shame on them. Shame on him. And there are still good and decent people in this world who stand with honorable public servants like John Dingell and his legacy. Good grief. So on that note, let me bring in my first guest, Philip Bump, followed by Harvard Law Professor, visiting law professor, Jennifer Taub. Well, in the middle of all this impeachment craziness, we have the good stewards of information who work for publications like the Washington Post, who tried to analyze and bring to the people what the hell is actually going on. And my friend, Philip Bump, who is the national correspondent for the Washington Post, a national correspondent for the Washington Post, is joining me today to talk a little bit about impeachment, the politics of that, what's been going on. And then we're going to talk a little Giuliani because he's been doing great work following what Giuliani's been up to. So Philip Bump, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you very much. So it's official. The president's been impeached. Uh, like many of us, uh, we've watched you watched the, the countless hours of testimony and the wrangling on the House floor. Um, what what stood out to you most about the lead up to the vote on impeachment, especially with Republicans and their arguments? Uh, 
I mean, I, I think the the most striking thing to me was the extent to which the Republican arguments were actually effective at keeping Republicans in line, right? I mean, I mean that both in terms of Republicans in the House, but then more broadly, Republicans nationally. There there really wasn't much movement in the polls. There wasn't really any uh, groundswell of Americans saying, "Hey, you know, this is this is the sort of behavior that I I, I don't condone," and you know, coming coming on board this impeachment bandwagon. Uh, Republicans, in part leveraging Fox News' amplification, uh, were effective at putting out a message that kept both members and voters on the same team. But was that message honest? Because I would say no, and I know that you had an analysis specifically about some of the things that they were repeating over and over again, particularly by Doug Collins, who was controlling most of the time. You pointed out there were four claims that he kept repeating over and over and over again and that they were dubious at best. What were they? Well, they were false. I mean, I mean, they were either false or they were obvious misinterpretations. Um, and, and you know, to answer your question, your immediate question directly, no, I, I don't think that, as a general rule, they were. Uh, there was an honest representation of the facts. So, so Collins, for example, said uh, his first claim was that there was no pressure put on Ukraine. Being, you know, he based that on Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky saying that he he didn't feel pressure. But of course, the, the pressure was naturally of the sort that wouldn't be out in the open. That Ukraine understood, sitting next to Donald Trump in particular, Zelensky understood, that he couldn't say, yes, I was under <laughs> I was right. under pressure. That's the entire nature of the pressure, right? And so there was no reason to assume uh, that, that he was going to be honest. And we, we had experts like uh, David Holmes, who works in the embassy in Kiev, say the Ukraine was under pressure, and this is what that pressure looked like. That was one thing Collins said. He said there's no conditionality that, that the uh, request for the investigations wasn't predicated on uh, he was really specifically focused on the military aid, but obviously there was conditionality. We know there's enormous documentation, evidence, testimony uh, suggesting that the White House meeting in particular was used as leverage to try and get these investigations. So that's not true. Uh, and Collins said that Ukraine did nothing to get the aid and that they ended up getting the aid. And yes, it's true they ended up getting the aid, but only after the House had announced an investigation, only after these questions had come to light. And Ukraine did do something to get it. First of all, they played along for a long time with trying to figure out what these uh, investigations could look like. But even when the aid was released and afterwards, Zelensky was still planning on going on CNN and talking to Fareed Zakari. It's been a long week. Fareed um, And uh, he's going to announce investigations on, on CNN in the middle of September. Uh, eventually, once all this came to light, that, that got kiboshed, but that was, it was on track. And so you, for Collins to make these assertions is simply a misrepresentation of what happened, if not not right line. And also, he was just so offended that I forgot who it was that referred to Zelensky as a battered wife uh, who made that reference. And he and Collins was just pearl clutching over that. Well, no, it was kind of true. You know, it's like when when women, you know, a battered wife or, or girlfriend does says, no, you know, I wasn't he doesn't put his hands on me. And no, I don't want to press charges. And but meanwhile, she's got. Uh, you know, black eyes and, you know, bruises. And but she's saying, no, no, he doesn't approve. He doesn't, uh, 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 you know, domestically abuse me. I fell down. I, it's the power dynamic. You know, of course, obviously, Zelensky can't say that, yes, Donald Trump is pressuring me to do these bogus investigations because he needs the money. I mean, the power dynamic is is obvious. So that was one of the more annoying 
messaging point talking points that Republicans were using that I just was like pulling my hair out about because it was like stop it anyone who can see what's going on knows that they knew it and didn't it just come out there were a bunch of whatsapp messages that back and forth that the that the Ukrainians were aware that the money was being held up long before they actually publicly admitted it so it's there I mean it's it's obvious um what do you see as as we go now into the next step Pelosi is flirting with the idea of holding on to these articles of impeachment because the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell has said, hey, I'm not an impartial juror. I'm not really trying to be fair here. And no, we're not going to bring witnesses. What do you think about Pelosi's strategy to possibly hold on to these articles of impeachment? I mean, honestly, I I don't really understand what the game plan is there. I mean, I get that the Democrats want to have some leverage moving forward. I I think the Senate would be happy to be like, okay, fine, hold on to it. Like, what do they care? I mean, yes, obviously Donald Trump would like to have this exoneration, but I think he's already seen that this hasn't really made much of a dent in his base, so I don't think he's champing it a bit too much uh, to get this exoneration. You know, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Look, I mean, back in, I guess it was probably September, October, shortly after the inquiry started, I wrote a piece which pointed out, hey, look, Democrats, once you guys are done, this goes to the Senate. Mitch McConnell can throw it in the garbage. Like, right. the only power you have is between the start of the inquiry and when you actually impeach the guy. Like, that's it, right? They're trying to sort of extend that timeline out. But it was obvious from the start, like, if you want to have more time here and do more stuff, this is your moment, right? Your moment was September until the impeachment vote. The impeachment vote has happened, trying to sort of scramble now and, you know, leverage as though the this, this Senate is so desperate to weigh in on this thing. I think it's a little misguided. Yeah, I mean, I, I see both sides of this. I get that they're looking at it saying, hey, why are we going to send this over there if there's not going to be a fair trial? But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but if you hold on to it, it just gives fuel to the fire to Republicans to whine and bitch about the process. So I don't know. I'm not I'm I'm undecided whether I think that this is a, a smart thing to do or not, because I think that Nancy Pelosi's handled this pretty well up to this point. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess obviously the jury is still out on this. No pun intended. Uh, we'll see how it plays out. But no matter what happens in the Senate, it's uh, we already know the outcome. It's fait accompli at this point. But it's uh, I guess it's about the politics of perception and how it plays for everyone at this point. Um, so we're all like impeachment fatigued out. We've <laughs> I'm so exhausted. I'm just emotionally exhausted over all of it. The vote has happened. He's impeached. Let's, you know, nothing's going to happen between now and the new year. So let's talk about something else a lot more interesting. Rudy Giuliani. You have been following Giuliani's exploits. And I just think this is a part of the story that even though he's seemed to be completely off the deep end, he's having a huge impact on this entire storyline. I mean, Rudy Giuliani is the foundation behind Donald Trump getting impeached in the first place because of his whole meddling in Ukraine. What in the hell is Giuliani doing? What is he up to now, Philip? Sure. I mean, honestly, he's up to the same thing he's been up to since the, about a year ago when he first started back in December 2018 having these meetings with these folks in Ukraine. Hey, here is my sort of shorthand presentation of what's going on. Giuliani uh, probably reads this book by Peter Schweitzer, which makes these allegations about uh, Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, and uh, Ukraine and China. He reads this book. Giuliani has been sort of pointing reporters to it, saying, you got to read this thing. He hears from Victor Shokin, who is this ousted prosecutor, the person that Biden said, hey, you got to fire this guy. And of course, the reason he told said that is because Shokin was not 
actually cracking down on corruption the way that he was supposed to. So Giuliani sits down with Shokin, and Shokin says, hey, actually, it was Biden that did this, and Biden's the bad guy, and Giuliani gets all excited. I mean, he's working for President Trump. And so he just starts on this campaign of just sitting down with, getting on the phone with anyone who will tell him anything about Joe Biden. And we saw there's this remarkable, really underplayed because of the impeachment stuff, but this remarkable article by Adam Antis in The New Yorker this week, which yes. walked through uh, uh, this uh, the guy who replaced Shokin as prosecutor general sat down with Entis and, and told him what the conversations he'd had with Giuliani and then Entis interviewed Giuliani. And Giuliani, just literally anything you tell him that's derogatory about Joe Biden, he'll repeat. And he'll say, well, I don't know if this is true or not, but X. <laughs> and he does this with stuff that we know is not true, like these Shokin allegations. We know that there's there's no foundation to them. We know there's no foundation to these charges that Ukraine interfered in the 2016 election. But he gets on TV, he gets on Fox News, he, you know, he gets on Twitter, he gets in the president's ear and he makes these claims. There was a really great, also underplayed yesterday, quote from Lindsey Graham, uh, which was uh, Lindsey Graham saying essentially, you know, I, I hope Giuliani knows what he's talking about. And it's like, no, man, he doesn't. Like, obviously he doesn't. He's Anyone who's telling him anything, this is not, a, it's not a question mark. He's making stuff up in grasping at straws. And that's really what's, dry, that's what's driven Donald Trump's response to Ukraine from the outset. And Giuliani's still doing it. He's still sitting down, folks, and he's sitting down with these Ukrainian folks in this really, really, really disreputable cable news network called One American News um, that is, you know, just giving them free reign to say whatever he wants, doesn't, you know, no real consideration of the facts, just total propaganda outlet. And this is, it's amplifying this message, which is, you know, again, calling it dubious is, is a discredited, actually dubious thing. <laughs> so let's, uh, can we go through a couple of the cast of characters that uh, sure. Giuliani's been talking to? Because I think it's important because these names will get thrown around a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, everyone knows about Parnas and Fruman. Um, right. I first started talking about them on the podcast back in September, actually before they got arrested, um, because they're, they're, they've been... Uh, you know, running around with Giuliani and all kinds of different things and questionable money and donations and corruption. And um, and then they go, they get arrested, coincidentally, uh, with a one way flight to Vienna, where a certain Russian oligarch is holed up, Dmitry Ferdish. Um and now we find out that Parnas took a million dollars from Ferdish and he claimed it was a loan to his wife, which no one believes. And people have been questioning, where is Giuliani getting his money? Do we have any idea? No, it's a great question. I mean, obviously, he is a private lawyer. Uh, there's no indication in Donald Trump's financial records that he's paying him anything. Uh, so it's a, it's a question mark. You know, this is – there are a lot of people who it would be great to see their tax returns. Uh, it would be very interesting to see Giuliani's. Of course, he's not a public official, so that's not likely. Uh, but it's, it, is a, it is definitely a black box. What do we know about the Southern District of New York looking into Giuliani's business? I mean, honestly, not a whole lot. We know that there is an investigation underway. It appears as though uh, Parnas is actually um, uh, working with investigators on that. He's had a lot of information that he's sort of been dribbling out. Um, beyond that, I, I don't know. I mean, it'll be very interesting to see. We've already seen, obviously, uh, federal prosecutors go after one of Donald Trump's personal attorneys, that uh, being Michael Cohen, last year. Uh, I'd be very interested to see if they also go after Giuliani in a very public way. Obviously, that's a pretty fraught thing to do. No kidding. Um, so we have Parnas and Fruman. Uh, I've, I encourage folks to go back and listen to the podcast in September, where I go down the list of transgressions with these guys. 
Um, then there in that New Yorker article, uh, and Adam did an amazing profile. He's the one that did the profile on Hunter Biden over the summer too, right? That was yeah, yeah, so. yeah. He's he's gotten some pretty some pretty extraordinary interviews. Um, but you also you wrote a, a guide to the activities of Trump Trump's personal lawyer a couple weeks ago, right. outlining who he's talking to. And you name so Victor Shokin. So he's right. the he, so there's him, the disgraced prosecutor that the entire Western world and the U.S. said he's got to go because. He's corrupt. Then you had uh, another prosecutor who had that same job, Lusenko, who was also yeah, he's... disgraced, corrupt prosecutor, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a sliding scale here. <laughs> so Lusenko's actually, the, <laughs> yeah, actually the guy who'd spoken then just for that New Yorker story that I was just referring to. Um, and Lutsenko is sort of a, a, a fringier guy, his background. It's a really great piece. People should go read it and get a full background on it. He's not as bad, according to all actors, as is Lutsenko. But, or, I'm sorry, as is Shokin. But he really sort of threw his hat in on the Giuliani stuff, in part because he was under fire uh, from Maria Ivanovich and the ambassador. Uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and so he sort of got in uh, pretty deep with Giuliani. He was the source for those now discredited stories by John Solomon at the Hill. You know, it's a sort of mishmash pool of people. Lutsenko is pretty prominent in there, but he still nonetheless, I think, has a better reputation than Shokin. But he changed his story, didn't he? Didn't he at first say that, oh, yeah. uh, that like Hunter Biden, that the Bidens did something corrupt and then he was going to give an affidavit right. and then he changed his story and said, no, 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 that's actually not true? Yeah, that's exactly right. He did he did that on a couple of things, uh, both in, in accusing the Bidens and I think more obviously he claimed that he had been given a list by Yovanovitch of people who he wasn't allowed to prosecute. Uh, it turns out that he had actually given that list to Yovanovitch, uh, which he admitted later, but Solomon had already run with it and it had already become part of the anti-Yovanovitch narrative. And that's something else Giuliani admitted to, right? Uh, I think it was on – well, in that interview and then also I think he was on with Laura Ingram – where he said, yeah, you know, we got rid of her. We had to get rid of the uh, of Ivanovich because yeah. she was in our way. She was in the way of our investigations. Right. That's yeah. nuts. There's yeah, no, I mean, right? it, there's no indication that Marie Ivanovich was corrupt or did anything right. uh, untoward. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, what's really remarkable about Giuliani's claim is not only the timing that right as President Trump was facing impeachment, you know, in some small part because of how he handled the Ivanovich situation, Giuliani saying, no, actually we did this. But it really reveals that Giuliani, I think, really thinks that he's, you know, that he's a dog that's on the scent, right? I mean, he he really thought Ivanovich wasn't going to go along with these investigations. And of course not, because the investigations are really, really groundless and, and, and frankly, quite goofy in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, Giuliani comes up this week and like, yeah, Shokin was poisoned twice, and both times he technically died, but then he was resuscitated. Right. Like, what are you talking about, right? right? Like, right. like, that's the sort of thing, like, people may remember there was a, there was a Ukrainian politician who was, who was poisoned using polonium by the Russians about a decade ago. And that was massive international news. Right. He survived. If Shokin had been poisoned twice in recent, like, I feel like that might make the news clips, right? But, Donald, you know, Giuliani just sort of swallowed. Anyway, so Giuliani makes this claim about Ivanovich. She's standing in the way of the investigations he, because he thinks these investigations are legitimate. Right. He thinks like these are things that deserve to be investigated. And, you know, I, I know that the response to this is going to be, well, we should know what happened with the Bidens. And it's like, yes, of course, we should. 
our job as journalists is to dig into things and see what's going on. This has been dug into, and there's not a suggestion that what happened was beyond the sketchiness of Hunter Biden going to work for this company and obviously leveraging his last name to do so, which I think everyone would agree is not the best sure. look in politics. Right. right. It's not illegal. Beyond. Yeah, right. Beyond that, we've looked at this thing. You know, Yovanovitch was aware of what was going on. She knew why Shokin got ousted. And so for Giuliani to, to make that claim is both bad politically for Trump, but then secondarily really suggests that he doesn't understand that he is barking up. He's not even barking up the wrong tree. He's barking up a light pole and has no idea. So didn't he also um, try to oh, – well, he said that he, he talked to these other, like, um, Ukrainian parliament members, right? And isn't there some KGB connection to these guys, or one of them at least? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of folks who have had links to pro-Russia parties. You know, my understanding – this is not my area of expertise, or I can pretend it is – but my understanding is that Russia and Russian intelligence services are very good at sort of infiltrating uh, particularly Ukrainian politics given the tension between those two countries. And so I think there are probably a lot of links there uh, that may not even be well documented. I don't want to cast dispersions on particular people, but I think there's very little question that there are links between some of the people that, that Giuliani is speaking with and uh, Russian intelligence. Right. You named two, um, one, a Dubrinsky and Durkok, and you said, I guess, that both were known um, from experts on Ukraine, that they were known as disin- disinformers, that they were disinformation, right. um, well, known for their disinformation campaigns. Right. Well, there's a, there's a, there's sort of a difference between that and being Russian agents, yes. right? I mean, yeah. these are just people that sort of, you know, they're like, they're somewhere on the spectrum between obnoxious troll and active participant in Russian disinformation, right? So, like, saying that they are known for disinformation may just mean also that they just throw out nonsense, right? And I think they're like people on Donald Trump's campaign who we could call disinformation experts uh, who aren't necessarily therefore working for uh, the Russian intelligence. Right. But they're all. But the point is that these are not respectable, reputable. People oh, exactly. That Giuliani is using and claiming that these are this is that he's got compiling all this information, um, right. and that you know I mean like the Victor Shokin thing is is crazy to me so much because first of all, Yovanovitch didn't she deny a visa for him to come to the U.S. Like did Giuliani wanted to bring him to the U.S. to testify or do something? I don't know what, and she refused that, and that's one of the reasons why he wanted to get rid of her. Is that correct? Right. Yes, that is correct. That, that actually, I believe that the State Department refused it because he was known to do participating in corruption. So they're like, yeah, no, he's not allowed like, to No, he's not coming here. Uh, and right. then but, this is the same guy that on the infamous July 25th phone call says that he was a good guy. When he's talking, when Trump was talking to Zelensky, he refers mm-hmm. to Shokin and said that he was a good guy and got a bad deal. So clearly he, Giuliani is trying to make Shokin as the victim and got into Trump's ear about that to the point where Trump is actually victimized saying that you know mar- making shokin a martyr this cut that's insane yeah there there is i will say some uncertainty about who trump was actually referring to i've seen people who are think are pretty knowledgeable go both ways that he was either talking about shokin or he may have been talking about lutsenko both of whom were former prosecutors both of whom uh, were uh, working with giuliani i don't know that that's clear but either way it's obvious it's not like Donald Trump sat down and like did a lot of legwork in figuring out who the prosecutors were that had served. <laughs> right. right. Obviously, he was getting this from Giuliani, and obviously Giuliani was saying these are good people, which is something that Trump then reiterated to. Of uh, course. Was so Giuliani claims that he's 
got a report or something that's supposed to come out. We've heard this before. He said he was going to write a counter report to the Mueller investigation. That didn't happen. Right. Now he claims that he's got some kind of report he's compiling, and there's a possibility that Lindsey Graham will allow him to testify. Is Where are we at with that? Uh, so <laughs> you really are pushing me to, like, not— like, I don't want to be unduly disparaging, but it's really kind of amusing that there's like this very like, well, my book report is due Tuesday aspect to this. That Giuliani said he's going to write this 20 page report. And folks may remember that over the, you know, shortly after all this Ukraine stuff came to a head, there was this weird press conference where the State Department is like, we have this weird related information that we need to get out there. And so we're going to publish it. And it turned out to be this big packet of documents that, it, that Giuliani had actually given to the State Department. And this is, I, I keep coming back to this. I think this is the best metaphor for what happened with Ukraine, is that Giuliani takes all these interviews that he'd had with Lutsenko and Shogun and so forth, he types them up, he puts them in a Trump hotel folder, takes a bunch of Trump hotel folders, slides that into an envelope on which he writes the White House and gives it to the State Department. So he's taking bad information, putting it in a Trump folder, putting it in a White House folder and giving it to the State Department. Anyway, if that is an indication of the kind of report that Giuliani is putting together, I am not expecting world-shaking revelations. Well, uh, you know, that's where we are. And, and the fact that Giuliani continues to do this with absolute reckless abandon, with no fear of any repercussions, it just makes you wonder, has there been a deal cut between him and Trump, where Trump's like, keep it going, Rudy, I got your back, because I can pardon you if you get in trouble. I mean, it just, just the fact that he's allowed to keep doing this um, and that he still has a platform. I mean, some of the things are so crazy that he had to go to OANN. Even Fox was like, no. But Laura Ingram is still giving him a platform. He's still getting on Fox. Um, but he's not, I, I just don't know. I mean, do you, what do you think the over-under is that he testifies uh, in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee? You think it's going to happen? I am a little skeptical just because I think Lindsey Graham is very strongly pro-Trump, but I think he's also not an idiot. And I think that he's going to sit down with Giuliani and hear what Giuliani has to say and be like, mm, I mean, you know, once he's sitting testifying, like you can't just sit and lie to Congress. Right. And he's going to have Democrats there as well. And, uh, you know, I mean, Giuliani, God bless me, he used to be a prosecutor, but I think it's been a while since he's been cross-examined. I'm not sure that he'd hold up particularly well. Well... The saga continues. Philip Bump, keep up the great work. Uh, where can people find you and read your awesome columns? Uh, the Washington Post, which is a major metropolitan newspaper. And where can they follow you on social media? Oh, P-Bump. Good old P-Bump. <laughs> P-Bump, nice and easy on Twitter. That's it. And uh, follow Philip's columns. He, You also do a lot of really good analysis and a lot of charts if you're into data um we'll, we'll talk about that another day but you really do break down some interesting political um uh data sets and things uh about what's happening with the election and different voting demographics and you always have a good chart so for the political nerds out there follow <laughs> philip bump just for his charts it's worth it philip exactly. thank you so much ha happy holidays and i hope you get a chance to um Take a breather while <laughs> while we have some some respite from this impeachment stuff over the holidays. I hope you you as well to take a breath. Thank you very much. All right, my friend. Bye. There's just been so much going on with impeachment, and I know a lot of people have impeachment fatigue. I know I do, but 
This is history. It's happening, folks. The President of the United States has been impeached, and I just feel it's important to keep bringing on people who know what's going on, who are smart, that can explain uh, the impeachment process, what we're seeing, because there is so much BS going on. And that's why this week I have, last week I had historian Tim Niftali. This week I'm bringing on law professor Jennifer Taub. She is a uh, law professor at the Vermont Law School, and she's also very schmancy fancy now, a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. Welcome, Jennifer. Welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thanks for having me. I like that the name of your podcast, Honestly Speaking. I don't know any other way, so this is going to be fun. <laughs> That's what I say. Uh, when I was trying to decide on the name of my podcast, I went through a, a bunch of different iterations, and my husband was like, yeah, but you are you just speak honestly. That's who you are. I'm like, honestly speaking, it is. So I don't know how to be any other way e- either. That's the Jersey girl in me. It's a, a blessing and a curse. Trust me. Um, <laughs> so... We have an impeachment. It's official. It is now uh, in the history books. There's nothing Donald Trump can do about it. And you tweeted something that caught my attention. Now, we're part of a of a, of a Twitter group uh, of a bunch of us, but you tweeted something that I saw in our little Twitter group that, that I thought, you know what? You're 100% right. You made the point that Donald Trump has never been held accountable for anything in his entire life, whether it was cheating on, in the casino business, in real estate, um, you know, all of those things that he's done. And he's been able to weasel his way out of it. This time, he could not. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Yeah, it, you know, it's amazing to me that he controls the narrative so well. Like he, you know, he lashes out yesterday morning saying, how can I be impeached? I've done nothing wrong. And I'm thinking, uh, no, uh, you did a lot wrong. And I went through and we can talk about it, but I went through and listed like throughout his life, all the different different things that he, you know, he's done wrong and has a kind of a terrible, terrible record. I mean, he's, the guy has been, been cheating people for, for ages. I mean, he, you know, cheated on his three wives. He cheats on the golf course. He cheats on his contractors. Um, he cheats his customers and, and he's cheated on the election. That's where we are now. But, but, even worse, some of this stuff is implicating, you know, our legal system. And when he, right after he was elected, he settled for around, I think it was, it was $40 million, a racketeering case involving his fake university, his, the Trump Taj Mahal um, settled money laundering, civil money laundering charges just was it just a couple of weeks ago when he had to pay two million dollars um, because he was abusing his charity? And now I now he's been banned from running a charity. I mean, you know, so this idea that he's this persecuted person who he claims made a perfect phone call. Um, and why are people coming after him? It, it's absolutely laughable. It it really is. And I'm I try to remind people of Trump's transgressions because they are long. There's a lot of them. And it's amazing to me how so many of his supporters just dismiss all of it. It's, it's, um, it's very frustrating. And, but that doesn't mean that we can't keep pointing it out. So I'm glad that you pointed those things out and you actually brought up some, some that I forgot about because it's just been (laughs) such a fire hose of information all the time of just corruption with this guy 
that it's important for people to know. Donald Trump has been a crook his entire life, just like his father. And, yes. And go ahead. can I just say this thing? Like, you know, I think the reason why people, the people who I know who dismiss it, they say um, they, they don't understand proportion. They'll say, well, you know, other politicians are crooked. But, you know, it, things, the matters of degree matter. And said, said differently, you know, let's say there was some quack physician who was claiming to have some miracle surgery. And, you know, he has 20 patients and all 20 of them die on the table. Right. And you keep saying, telling your friends, you know, you really shouldn't go to that quack doctor. Um, 20 people die. And they say to you, yeah, but that doctor pointed out to me that this famous surgeon who um, has a real cure, who's over the course of his life, seen 50,000 patients, 20 of them also died. So they're both the same. Right. Right. And that kind of false equivalency, you know, breaking down people's logic. Yes, all of us in our lives have made mistakes and had to say we're sorry to our families, to our friends. You know, maybe you took some post-its from work once and those weren't your post-its because you threw them in. Did you ever do that, Tara? (laughs) You threw the post-its in your bag. Right. And, you know. Is that were those post-its yours? No, um, were you know you took them home. That doesn't make you equivalent to somebody who embezzles two million dollars from the company, and that's the kind of stuff you know Donald Trump has figured out to do because his whole life he's been a liar and a cheater. This is a guy who would um, pretend you know pretend to be um, someone named John Barron and and call reporters and talk about his sex life and. Um, how great he was in business, and it, he was lying. He, you know, so he, he. This is someone who's gotten, um, you know, he, he, he. It's just, it's, it's kind of unbelievable how far he's gotten in life because of his bullying, because of his father's money, because um, no, everyone's afraid of him, and this is where we are now. And it's astonishing to me that this emperor has no clothes, and everybody's running around talking about how good he looks. Yeah, no kidding. And and what wonderful hair he has and how the how the incandescent light bulbs are better lighting for him than than, than the new LED lights. I mean, you know, it's just, it, it, the insanity, there's no limit to it. Um so that brings us to the impeachment and you've been following this closely. What I am involved in is I'm independently um, following impeachment. I've given several talks about it, one at Boston College Law School, one recently at Bennington. And I'm also on the board, though, um, of a group called Free Speech for People. Yes. And my colleagues there um, put out a book last summer um, about impeachment. And they're one of the people who probably um, have thought the president should be impeached for a long time. And it's it's really interesting. This is it was used as a weapon in the Congress by Republicans saying there are some people here who've wanted Trump to be impeached since the day he took office. Now, that was not the majority of the Democrats, as Steny Hoyer um, pointed out. You know, they resisted three different calls for impeachment. However, some of us wanted him to be impeached from the beginning because he was violating the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution. There are others who wanted him impeached because of the way he behaved with Putin in Helsinki. So there are a lot of different things that people looked at along the way saying this was an abuse of power. This was a constitutional um, violation of some sort. So I that that group um you know, has has been around hoping for this um, for for a long time. That's something I wish Democrats would have done more of. They I wish they would have gone down the list of things that were potentially impeachable from the beginning um, to just remind people of of some of the more alarming 
behaviors by Donald Trump since he took office, um, like Helsinki and and like the love letters with Kim Jong-un and, the, mm-hmm. you know, the uh, giving up of classified information in the Oval Office with the, uh, you know, with the Russians. And like, I wish they would have gone down and said, yeah, you know, there were some of us who were looking at impeachment early on because of this, 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 and this. <laughs> but- and it reached a boiling point, right? I right. mean, to us, I mean, I think that some, to some degree, um, Study Hoyer was bringing this up in his final remarks about he this was. pattern of behavior. And you're right. I mean, we how soon we forget Jamal Khashoggi, right. who was brutally, you know, the, the a U.S.-based journalist who was brutally, um, brutally murdered and dismembered on what we believe to be the orders of um MBS, um, the the uh, the crown prince in, in Saudi Arabia, and Trump literally said, you know, he, he he once again denies the intelligence reports he gets, and literally says, well, they pay in cash. What he means is support his businesses. This is a guy who, from day one, has made clear that he cares about his bottom line and lining his own pockets, and how he appears and um, his personal status, and he'll sell anyone out. Um, to uh, to to support himself. And even now we're going to see what he's going to do to the Republican Party to try to clear his name um, and what chaos he's going to create, I predict, um, and after uh, after the impeachment articles move into the Senate. Well, let's talk about that. So there's some there's some discussion now uh, about what Nancy Pelosi is going to do with these articles of impeachment. Um, this has been, I know Lawrence Tribe, Professor Tribe was one of the first people I heard suggest that she hold on to them because of the behavior so far by Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham saying that they are not impartial jurors, which is what the Constitution calls for um, in the Senate. And, you know, why are we going to send the articles over to the Senate if they're not going to have a fair trial? What's the point of that? Um, I have mixed feelings about it because I think that possibly by holding on to these articles of impeachment, it just gives Republicans more fuel for the fire to whine and bitch about process and that it's all political. And, you know, why did they rush through it if they're going to hold on to them and all of that? I just think that the American people can't they don't process these things as deeply as we do, those of us who follow it. So I'm not sure if that's strategically the right thing to do. But what are your thoughts on what Nancy Pelosi has done so far? Well, I mean, you know, I always say I'm not Nancy Pelosi. And I say this without the, in this context of when I was arguing for impeachment before she was ready, I would say, you know, look, she's going to do what she has to do. But I'm not Nancy Pelosi, right? I'm a, a member of the populace. I'm we the people like you. And if I think that I want to push the House forward, I'm going to do that at rallies in my writing and so on. And she knows what's best for her, you know, for her full caucus and for all their constituents. And I believe that I believe that it's the combination of people pushing for impeachment and, and, and talking to their members that when the facts were there in front of her at that point, you know, she did have to to follow those facts. So I think where I am now is I'm utterly amazed at her leadership. Um, I think no one should second guess her. I think she does amazing work. And I think right now I really admired how she said last night that she's going to talk with the her committee chairs and figure this out. And I think that also means she's got to figure out what's good for the caucus, because it, you're right. When you look at the constitutional text, it's, it's really clear that the House has the sole power of impeachment and the Senate has a sole power to try the impeachments. But beyond that, it's pretty – 
it's pretty um, vague, vague right. but there, but there are in place. Um, if you want to get really geeky here, these um, Senate impeachment rules that have been um, in place, they were amended in 1986. It's a nine-page document, and it's pretty um, pretty detailed. Um, and you know, they can change those rules, and they 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 need you know 51 of them to change the rules. But it doesn't. Even in the rules, there's no. Um, the Senate doesn't have any any power to do anything um, until the House adopts until the House appoints their managers um, and actually, you know, presents the they actually have to go over. There's there's like these magic words. They have to go over and actually present the articles um, to the Senate. And so until that happens, the Senate has no power yet at all. They can only they can't try a case that hasn't been presented to them. So um, I think Pelosi is in a very powerful position to try to assist her counterparts in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, to negotiate um, some fair rules. Because what we've heard Mitch McConnell say and Lindsey Graham is they don't want to be impartial. They, they, you know, Mitch McConnell wants to dispense with the, of this very quickly. He said, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not an impartial juror. And he, but he said something else that I found very telling, which is that he's working hand in hand with the white house. So I think Mitch is worried that what Trump is going to direct him in some sort of crazy way. And he's putting it out there for the record. So if he gets blamed later, if things go awry, the world knows it wasn't his fault. That's part of my, (laughs) well, uh, you know, I've been watching Mitch McConnell for many, many years as a Republican. And one thing, I mean, he, I, he makes my skin crawl right now because I just can't believe how intellectually dishonest he's become. But he knows the rules of the Senate. He is an institutionalist in a lot of ways. He knows how things work and he's very shrewd um, procedurally with things. So he's also up for reelection. So he knows that it, he has to give some kind of some something to the White House as well to let them make them make them feel like they're a part of it. Because, right. you know, otherwise Trump could turn on him. And but, that, you know, that could, that could hurt his reelection in Kentucky. And speaking of Mitch, you know, he had no problem um, refusing to advance any of Obama's judicial That's nominees. Right. Right. We had the seat sitting after Justice Scalia right. passed away. Mm-hmm. Right. And early um, uh, early in the year. And he just simply um, in 2016, he just simply sat on Merrick Garland's nomination. And so there's I hear what you're saying. I do think that no matter what the Democrats do here, people are going to be yelling deep state and, and it's unfair and it was terrible. So if you know, there's no reason Nancy has to live with her own conscious conscience and what she thinks is right under the Constitution. And, it, you know, they they impeach the president on two articles. We know that abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. At this point, I don't think that she has a constitutional duty or even a moral imperative to hand those articles over to somebody who says they're going to tear them up and that they're not worth the paper they're written on, which is kind of what Mitch said. So if there's there's no reason why now people are going to say, well, if it was so urgent, then why aren't you sending it over right. for a trial? Right. When someone says to you, we're not going to have a fair trial, then she why does she have to you know, then, then there is no urgency at this point. She did not know, you know, when they were. It wasn't until quite recently that Mitch said it wasn't going to be a fair trial. That's true. So, you know, this week 
Because before, right. and he, so, he, wasn't, he wasn't telegraphing that. Before, right. everything was done. You know, before so the Democrats, was, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Democrats moved forward in good faith. And just as it started to close in on the actual hearings um, to impeach the president, that's when he said he wasn't going to play fair. Well, you know, at this point, what's in the best interest of the country has been done so far, and the next steps are complicated. Now, let's imagine that there are apparently, I think they need four Republicans to change the, the, the to go with the Democrats in the Senate and change the rules in such a way that there would be witnesses at the Senate trial, specifically some of those witnesses who refused to testify because of a bogus um claim of privilege that the president um, was not asserting directly, but telling them that uh, they needed to honor. So we need to hear from John Bolton. We need to hear from Secretary of State Pompeo. We should hear from Chief of Staff, Acting Chief of Staff Mick, Mick Mulvaney and others um, at the Senate hearing. And if they're not interested in calling those witnesses, I, you know, I just don't I think they're going to be at a stalemate for a while. And maybe it would be good for the country just to take a pause um, from impeachment now that he's been impeached and get on with the um, get on with a Democratic primary and then pick this up um, later once we have a candidate. There's no reason why to rush this right now. That's interesting. Um, I uh, I see both sides of this. I'm still undecided where I strategically fall on it. Yeah, I, I see the arguments on both sides and it's frustrating as hell because these Republicans, like Lindsey Graham and and, and Mitch, Mitch McConnell, they were there for the Clinton impeachment in 98, 99. Mm-hmm. And they're arguing the complete opposite of the positions they're taking now. And it's like the only reason they're doing this is because the, they know the case against the president is so damning that the only thing they have is procedural bullshit to, to try to tie this up and muddy the waters because it's just, it's indisputable what he did and they know it. And Mitch McConnell's worried that if they actually bring those witnesses, the firsthand witnesses that everyone is, all the Republicans have complained that the 17 other witnesses were hearsay and second and third hand, except for one or two of them. And well, that's because you guys aren't letting the White House won't let the firsthand witnesses well, testify. Can and I just say happened, something about the witnesses too? Yeah. They're, they had several of their own witnesses, but they all turned out to implicate the president right. in these high crimes. Now they're trying to claim that, oh, those were pre-approved by the Democrats. That's right. not true. They submitted their own names, including Gordon Sondland, and they thought he was going to you know, be the key you know, to, to exonerating the president. And that guy said, I'm not going to jail for anyone. He didn't say that out loud, but obviously his lawyers, he got a good lawyer, and they said, don't be Michael Cohen. That's right. That's absolutely right. And Sondland, Sondland's testimony was it, it, it was uh, you, uh, the, I think the best way to describe Sondland's testimony was Devin Nunez's face at the end of it when they went into a <laughs> break. And it turned into a lot of memes where Devin Nunez just looked completely exasperated. And they should have been because, De- you know, Sondland came out and said, yeah, it was a quid pro quo. You know? <laughs> Do you know what I want to also say is it's painful when you remember too much as you're watching things, because I realize that, you know, a lot of folks who are kind of following this don't have the luxury of people like me who can follow it closely for a number of years. So la- yesterday, when Kevin McCarthy, who is the um, 
he's not he's not the speaker of the house but he's the leader. he's a majority leader minority 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 leader so he's a, the the top he's the Nancy Pelosi equivalent for the Republicans in the house and yesterday he was up on his high horse yelling about procedure and saying how terrible all of this was and you know all of the Trump talking points and you know this is the guy who in, during the primary in 2016, when the Republicans didn't like Trump, he's on tape. They caught him on tape saying, I think Putin pays Trump. That's right. He was talking to Paul Ryan. He also yep. mentioned my former boss, Dana Rohrabacher. In that oh, my goodness. That's and, right. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can always, I always say that Dana was not on the payroll, but he was he was very wrong about his his positions on Russia. And they went more awry after I left his office in 2013. <laughs> I always put in I that believe default. you. <laughs> but, but, yeah. but so this but, and then they said, well, you know, the. In, they kind of tried to say first they said it never happened, you know, didn't right. happen. So and the then then suddenly out. the tape shows up. So, you know, the, these folks, I mean, who, you know, who knows what he was thinking at that time? But it's kind of like Lindsey Graham, who in 2016 said, if we nominate this guy, we will be destroyed and we will deserve it. And it's like I, you know, that's still up on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I still, rem- you know, we remember this and you're just wondering, so what you have to, well, you have to kind of guess, and I don't think there's necessarily compromise on these people compromising information. doesn't really matter. Something happened with these folks or they decided, let's just go all in. And for whatever reason, they put aside their truthful conversation, um, their honest talk. They, they put it all aside. They didn't change their view of him. They're just lying to us about their view of him. And I think that kind of gaslighting is so utterly destructive to the democratic system. That's what bothers me the most. I mean, you and I, I've always been a Democrat. You've been a Republican. We could probably sit down and argue about our positions um, on different different areas, whether it might be choice or it might be how to deal with business regulation. I don't know what we might argue about, but we could at least we could start with the same set of facts Correct. and disagreements about the best way to get there, That's right. or how much to spend doing it, or human nature. I might be you know think people are better than they are, and maybe we just have to do things in a different. We can sort of get into it, and those are the conversations that a Republican needs. None of us, neither you nor I nor anyone else, has all of the answers and information shifts. And this is the world, the democracy I want to live in. And I cannot tolerate people who are willing to just lie to the American people. And I'd never forget what Corey Lewandowski said. He said, it's not, it doesn't matter that he lies to the press, yeah, right? right? It's not that. under oath. So this is, if the view of the new Trump Trump has taken over the Republican Party and his view, and so are his his lieutenant's view, is that lying to the public is fine because it's not illegal. That's their perspective. That's not okay with me at all. And that's what makes me so concerned when I watch these guys do what they do. And even lying on the House floor, as you know, because of the speech or debate clause, Mm -hmm. you can't do anything about it. That's so watching people um, shade the truth, sometimes outright lie. You know, it's just it's it's shameful that, you know, they used to be the party of Lincoln. They should they should know better. Uh, You're preaching to the choir in that one. Believe (laughs) me, I've watched and discussed as, uh, you know, member after member, Republican after Republican went on during those speeches, during the impeachment debate before the vote and just 
manipulated, lied, put forth Russian propaganda talking points. I, I could not believe it. And I'll tell you what, Louis Gohmert, who was a who was a congressman who I used to get along with and was one of my buddies when I worked in Capitol Hill. I'm so ashamed of him. And he's part of a long list. But what he did on the floor, putting literally spouting Russian propaganda um, mm. and then Congressman Nadler corrected that. And then he got into a screaming match. Gomer did with Nadler over it because mm. Nadler corrected him that what the hell is wrong with these people? I, you know, it's just, it, it, it is astounding to me. And I, you know, why that's the million dollar question. Well, say. I think I know. Yeah. I, I mean, I know you know, I, it, and it's about power and being yes. afraid to lose it. Look, Correct. I think sometimes people get it. Some people go into public service and actually want to serve the public. And yeah, maybe their ego gets called up in it, but it's a completely different thing when it's ego first, where they see themselves as a leader before they actually care about the people or they get lost along the way. It's like that judge said, you know, politics doesn't corrupt people. People corrupt politics. Honestly, I think it's a combination. It's a combination of both. Absolutely. what do you think? No, what do you I think, think? I think you're right. I mean, Lindsey Graham, and I refer to this often when people look at Lindsey Graham and the more he debases himself, the more it reminds me of this interview he did earlier this year um, with a um, – it was on the New York Times uh, podcast where he was asked, you know, like, what, what, what changed for you? And he basically – made the point that he's never had more access to power and more political relevance than he does now. Mm. And every single member who's an, who's an elected official wants, wants that. So why would he not basically do what he needs to do to maintain that power and relevance? That he basically said, and it's the most cynical answer, but the most obvious one, because Lindsey Graham, I mean, he was there were there was no mincing of words with him when it came to Donald Trump. Um, there's a my friends over at the Bulwark, and I mentioned this on CNN. Uh, they started one of them started a Twitter account called Lindsey Graham's Conscience, and they found hours and hours and hours, dozens of hours, I think like hundreds of hours of Lindsey Graham talking smack about Donald Trump and warning about what a problem he would be and things that he said. And every single day they take a clip and they put it on Twitter of things that Lindsey Graham said in his own voice about Donald Trump. What the hell changed from three years ago to now? Nothing other than Lindsey Graham now is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He has a seat at the table with the president before he was just John McCain's sidekick. Mm-hmm. You know? And it's, uh, it's, you know, it's intoxicating and it's a shame because the, the, the Republic is paying a price for it because these people who are entrusted with their oath of office are using it for their own gain in ways that's just hurting the American people in our system. And that's not mm. something I can stand for. Um, yes. We were talking offline. Um, you mentioned to me something like you said just before that, you know, you're a lifelong Democrat. I'm a lifelong Republican. But there are things that have brought us together now. You know, the country may be divided, but there are some things that have brought us together. Um, you know, what what was it that attracted you to kind of join forces with folks like me who would normally we'd be arguing over social security and healthcare and whatever else, (laughs) but we're on the same team now. I mean, I think maybe what we share in common is a disdain for corruption. Um, uh, you know, suspicion of, you know, of, of a kind of, uh, uh, you know, con artists (laughs) and, and and also concerns about crony capitalism. So this idea that we want to, you know, I think 
I think I'm someone who believes in shared prosperity, wants wants everyone in society to have a chance. And I don't like when government is corrupted. And I always thought that um, conservatives, especially conservative Republicans, were afraid of excess executive power, didn't want a monarch. And yet it seems like they're they're you know, they're pretty happy with someone who's a a a wannabe dictator who you know acts like a acts like a tyrant i you know so i thought that and i think that's probably why some of the never trumper folks um have something in common but i also think it's the belief in institutions um and the and and the belief in um that saying the word elite isn't or expert isn't bad if we're actually talking about people who are trained and knowledgeable, um, belief in the free press, all these kinds of fundamental principles that you might think are, are conservative. You know, can't, you know. remember um, Nixon, as bad as he was, um, was really good for the environment. So these ideas of, you know, being, caring about the environment, treating family and friends with respect, honesty, dignity in the way we comport ourselves in the language we use, um, these kinds of things, caring about being against corruption, all of that, I think, is the place the place where we meet. What do you think? I, I think that's true. I mean, I laugh at some some of the relationships I have now with folks who maybe five years ago I wouldn't have even thought of of uh, that we'd be fighting on the same side of things. It's um it's been pretty remarkable, but it's been eye opening too because it goes to show you that there are certain ties that bind us that are unbreakable. And it's important, I think, for this, for, for the health of our republic to make sure that good and decent people can still agree and without being disagreeable and still agree on things that keep this, that, that keep this country moving forward. Because if we lose that, then there's no turning back. And I, I get worried that we are heading down a, a, a path that may be irreparable if Donald Trump is reelected. Like that's what motivates me to, to do everything I can to make sure that I inform people what's going on and work hard to make sure that he doesn't get elected again. It's why I respect Justin Amash. We talked about him offline too for a minute. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, Justin Amash was always more of a libertarian. There were parts of what he believes that I didn't agree with, but for the most part, his respect for institutions and the Constitution and rule of law, he and his conservative principles, he stuck to them. But he was forced to have to make a political decision to leave the Republican Party in order to stay who he is. And I think that's a shame. Um, it would have been uh, it would have been great if he had stayed a Republican and still voted because he did vote in favor of the both articles of impeachment. Um, mm-hmm. But like uh, we were, were discussing there was an eye there next to him. He's now an independent. Yeah. So it gives the Democrats, the, I mean, it gives the Republicans the talking point of, oh, it, was, it wasn't a bipartisan impeachment. Well, it kind of was. <laughs> but, it kind of was, yes. I agree with you. you know, I mean, although he's not public. I, and I wonder where he is in terms of caucusing. I mean, I wonder where his, other than impeachment and Russia-related votes, he might still be caucusing with the Republicans in terms of where his votes are. So, you know, it really does. It is, a, I mean, he did what he had to do. And this is not meant as a criticism. But like you said, wouldn't it have been nice if his vote had been an R? That's right. And he's from Michigan. And yep. it's a crucial state. And the president was in re- Michigan recently and gave one of the most insane rallies, speeches that he's given yet. 
each rally becomes more crazy and awful than the next one. Um, you have family in Michigan. What, I what's, do. Uh, what's what's the sense over there? Um, you know, I I have you know many family members in Michigan. That's where I where I grew up, and you know I think without naming any of them in particular, because some of them are Republicans and some of them are Democrats, I would say the overall feel um, is that, you know, Trump was never their candidate. And for those of my family members who voted for them, it was more of a protest vote against Hillary Clinton Mm -hmm. because they never, um, for those family members, they didn't like the Clinton family because of the the perception of corruption. And I'm not going to go down that, you know, this isn't about the Clintons, uh, but I'm just pointing that so that I don't see, I, you know, and if you remember in the primary in Michigan, um, Bernie won, you know, I think people in Michigan, um, you know, they want to have good jobs. They want to raise their families. They want to, you know, they want clean lakes and clean air and, and you know, those kinds of things. And there's, a, I think, a suspicion of entrenched politicians and maybe they kind of fell for he's this outsider and he's going to help us. But, you know, it's just disgusting what he did last night attacking Congressman Dingell, um, you know, who just passed away, who was beloved in Michigan. And, you know, when I don't know if you saw this on on some of the, the footage, but there were some protesters there who I think unfurled a sign, yeah, that said Don the Con or something. Mm-hmm. And instead of, you know, he cannot stand any dissent. And so when they were asking her to leave, apparently, you know, she was not whoever this protester was or one of them wasn't leaving quickly enough. So first he called her a slob and then he said, well, why don't they grab, you know, grab her by the wrist? They're too, you know, gentle with these people. And it's like, isn't he in the middle of a lawsuit? Right. Defending a lawsuit right now for um, having his people rough people up. Um, This is bad. But, you know, I think, you know, I think we forget, you know, this is how, you know, he, this is how he ran. Uh, his campaign, his hatred of the press, um, calling, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, fake news. We know what this incites. And it's not just about inciting violence. It's also by discrediting legitimate sources of information. This is what somebody does who's been cheating and lying their whole life. He gets it all set up. I mean, if you think about this guy, he's laughing at everybody. He just thinks it's all so funny because, but he's also very, I think he's, I think he's worried, but you know, he just will continue to to lash out. But his ridiculous tweet this morning of him in this, in sort of in the shadow saying, you know, they're trying to, I can't remember what it says exactly, but something like it's not, you know, not about him, but that they're, you know, that it's, that it's us or something like that to impeach us and overturn. Yeah. He, he, he's very good at manipulating messaging to the, um, ill-informed well, they kept saying that mm-hmm. last night, this thing about overturning the 2016 election, yeah. I kept retweeting every time a member, a Republican member of Congress said, you know, there was an election in 2016 and this is the will of the people to have Donald be the president. Now, a couple things about that. Um, one, yes, he won the, the Electoral College vote, but he didn't have a, a mandate. He lost to Hillary Clinton by three million votes. But fine, he is the president. But there was also an election in 2018. That's right. And that's when the House turned blue. And I'll never you know, there are there are countless news stories where Trump and others campaign for Republicans saying we cannot let the Democrats take over because they're going to impeach me. And that was the message everywhere. And so, you know what? Everyone believed him and they flipped the House blue. So why, you know, 
they, they keep forgetting the 2018 election. He promised they would try to impeach him. I think was it Nunes who said this too. There are yes. a number of them, a not just of Trump. Them did yeah. And so everyone was like, "Cool, they'll yeah. impeach you." Yeah, I oh, mean, that, I mean, where do we where do we sign so, up? <laughs> exactly, <laughs> and that. and um and in fact, that's why people were so unhappy with the Democrats at first because they didn't seem to be on it as job one. That's that's right. And Nancy Pelosi and just like Steny Hoyer in his in his speech, which was a barn burner. Oh, one of so the best good. speeches I've ever heard Steny Hoyer. I didn't know he had it in him. Me I either. was just like had the chills. I had tears in my eyes. Yeah. I was, couldn't believe it. My husband and I actually because I needed to take a break and we went out to dinner, <laughs> but I had it on the car and I was sitting yeah. in the parking lot waiting for Steny Hoyer to finish his speech. I was yeah. so enthralled. And then, of course, at the dinner table, I had the vote on my phone going on um, because I'm you know, I can't help myself. So you and I are like in the same. I have to tell you a funny story in a yeah. moment, but go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. So I was watching all that and I and I and one of my good friends actually works for Steny Hoyer. And I texted him. I said, your boss. I didn't know he had it in him. He's giving a barn burner of a speech. He's like, that's my guy. So, yeah. But anyway, I'm sorry. I mean, this is like the story of my life, right? My family and your family probably put up with us uh, watching all these hearings all the times. But today, you know, I told I couldn't talk to you this morning because I had a doctor's appointment. Yeah. While I, I was a doctor, I, I asked her whether she would mind what if I played a Mitch McConnell's speech. <laughs> <laughs> so I was playing it during my doctor's appointment. That's so funny. Yes, it's, it's like that. I mean, I I've been on vacation on the beach watching, you know, whatever on my phone, like, and I have to sometimes just say, okay, enough, enough. Uh, but right. It's hard. You know, it's hard. Uh, it's hard to do because the consequences are so great. Um, yep. Before we end, I we have to get this story in. Um, and then thank you for being so generous with your time. Oh, sure. So a really weird story happened to you last year in the fall of 2018. And it has to do with Bob Mueller, bribery and you. What happened? Okay. So what happened is I think it was one day um, in, in, in October, I got this kind of random um, email from somebody. I don't, you know, I'm sure you, you get a lot of emails. And it was an email from someone who claimed to be, um, well, it turned out to be this guy, Jacob Wall, who's a complete troll. But I, he, it, was, it, was, it was someone, I forgot what the name was, but it's someone from a company called Surefire Intelligence. <laughs> and I got this email at my work address saying, you know, dear Jennifer, um, it, you know, we, we understand that you worked with Bob Mueller years ago and we're doing some investigation into him. And if you, um, about, it was, it was kind of really creepy. It was kind of intimating that they were trying to dig up dirt on him and that maybe he had, um, what it turned out is they were trying to, um, smear him and claim that he'd had, he'd sexually harassed women. But the email to me said, if, you know, if, um, could you, you know, we'd be happy to pay for your time to talk to us about your encounters with him, or if you can recommend or name other people, that would be helpful too, something like that. And please be, you know, please, we hope you'll be discreet in this email. So did at they, first, did they realize you're a law professor. Yeah. Um, I think that they, I think that they did. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, can, I have different theories, but like, it was weird because when I first read it, you know, you, re- I don't know how many emails you get, but I read it quickly. And when I first read it, I was kind of like, oh, let me be very helpful and just email back and say, hi, sorry. You know, I don't know him. Right. right? That was my first instinct just to be helpful, make it go away. But before I started responding, I'm like, well, wait a second. I don't want to, 
I'm not inter- this could be I'm not you know I had part of my partly thinking you know should I call them and find out what they're up to and I'm like yeah I don't want to do that either and then I thought this is really weird so I googled I went on to the special counsel's website and they have a like a press office or a contact number and I forwarded it to the special counsel saying you know I'm not going to call this person back I don't know why they reached out to me maybe they have, they're casting a wide net to see what they find you know thanks <laughs> I just sent it and that was like on a you know beginning of a week and I didn't really think much of it although I did give it I did take a screenshot of my email and give it to um you, you must know Mimi Roca oh yeah I know um, Mimi well she's been a guest and, on the show and Jed Sugarman who's a law professor friend of mine and I said guys you know this seems we- like I just wanted someone else to know right this seems weird and they're like yeah and I said I'd forward it on to the special you know special counsel and then I thought that was it and that comes out the next week you know and that he they were trying to cook up this whole thing against accusing Robert Mueller and uh, you know I don't know um I don't know why he later claimed that he, he just he thought that I would go to the press and that's why they wanted the story out there because they wanted to prove they claimed that that the press was just going to make stuff up. Who knows what they were thinking? But I didn't go to the press until after it came out a week later when um what was his name? Peter Carr, who was a spokesperson for Robert yep. Mueller, yep. like Robert Mueller never, ever spoke to the press. And then Peter Carr announces about this whole smear attempt. Yeah. So that's when I went to Natasha Bertrand and said, look at this email. Um, but I don't know how in the heck they found why me or they, why. Why they pick you? Did you actually ever work with Bob Mueller? Never, so never, never, ever. I wasn't even a prosecutor. Nope. That is. So I have random. two different theories. I have two theories. One, the most simple one would be like a couple like a week before like a, was it a week or a few days before they reached out to me i had written a, an opinion piece for cnn uh, after the brett kavanaugh hearings mm-hmm. and i had talked about having been sexually assaulted in college so i wonder if their view was oh someone says they were right and they thought that oh this is going to be some bitter person who will just lie about anybody i don't know um and then the only other theory was this was right around the time when trump was about to get rid of jeff sessions and he was going to nominate um or put in place matt oh, Whit- matt, oh, matt whitaker right and this is this is okay, wait till you hear this if you have a moment. So Matt Whitaker was going to be nominated. And I wonder if they were trying to look into his past. Well, it turns out the very first time I was ever on cable television was CNN in July of 20, um, 2017. And the, the other guest was Matthew Whitaker. <laughs> and wait, this is kind of kooky but it was i was on to talk about and so was he to talk about it had just come out that a year earlier during the campaign don jr had met with um a a kremlin-linked lawyer in trump tower to get dirt on hillary infamous trump tower meeting yep and he admitted whitaker defended it and i kind of tore into him saying why i thought it was indefensible and he said anyone would take that meeting and i said no they wouldn't so i have this other theory that they came across me on the CNN clip of Whitaker and said, let's try to bring her down as someone who would take a meeting, even though something sounded fishy. What do you think of that theory? That, I think both theories are plausible. <laughs> That's really, I mean, because Jacob Wall and Jack Berkman are despicable, dishonest crooks. And yeah. they've pulled all kinds of stunts and they're just so dishonest. Jacob Wall's been arrested for well, right. uh, all kinds of 
uh, you know, he hasn't been, he, wasn't he arrested? Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah, it has to do with, yeah, either commodities or securities right. fraud. And wasn't right. he just arraigned? He was arraigned uh, um, this fall. And yeah. I guess he's going to be either have to plead or go to trial. Yeah. So these these guys are, are pieces of shit. And it does. It wasn't. <laughs> it was it does not beyond me that they are, you know, as conniving as they are, that they would you know, that's their thought process that they would say, you know, this woman, oh, she was a sexual assault victim. Maybe we can get her to go after um, uh, Mueller on this and pay her to do it or the Matt Whitaker thing. And oh, and she said that anybody would, you know, nobody. Would right. I wouldn't put it past them. They're conniving. Well, hell, do you so. think he's working with Trump? Um, I don't think directly. I think maybe with Trump's shadier people, because he's got a lot of those kinds of folks. I mean, Roger. So Trump sort of says, I want this happening. And then people know what he wants. And that kind of trickles. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Trump has seemed to unearth all of these, these con artists, connivers. And so it's, um, I mean, first, you know, for a guy who's done, for a guy who's done nothing wrong, it's really weird how everyone around him is going to federal prison. (laughs) And I mean, and there are more going to federal prison. (laughs) Gates just got uh, sentenced to 45 days. Michael Flynn's sentencing is coming up uh, early in in late January. So, yeah, just they just seem to continue to keep falling. Mr. Mr. I've never done anything wrong. Everything's perfect. But everybody else around him is uh, a bunch of crooks and liars. It's it's crazy. Jennifer Taub. Thank you so much for your time. Um, keep uh, where can people follow you because you do amazing work with your live tweeting on things and uh, your insights into what's happening with with the impeachment. How can people find you on social media? Um, yeah, sure. The the best there are two ways to reach me. I guess one would be on Twitter, and that's at Jen Taub, J E N. T-A-U-B. Or if you can't find me there, just ask Jacob Wall. He always knows how to track me down. (laughs) I love it. We need a little levity. That's how we stay sane. Happy holidays to you, Jen. You too. Uh, Drink some eggnog and have some stiff drinks and relax a little bit now that we have a bit of a lull in this impeachment mess because we're all going to pick it up at the end of the, I mean, beginning of next year. (laughs) Absolutely. Jennifer. I'll see you on the other side. You got it. Thanks so much. Again, a big thank you to both my guests for this week's episode and a big thank you to all of you for supporting the podcast for 2019. Looking forward to an amazing 2020. It's going to be an insane, (laughs) insane year with the election coming up. Oh my goodness gracious. So hold on. It's going to be a wild ride. Um, And I just want to say, as far as my feel good story this week, it's the, it's the Christmas season. It's the holidays just be good people, be good and kind, take into consideration those who are less fortunate. If you have toys or food or clothing, donate them. Donate them to domestic abuse shelters where women are brave enough to go and bring their families to escape domestic abuse. It happens every day. And during the holidays, it's really hard, especially on kids. So consider if you have a shelter or a local program, donate to them. It can really make a world of difference, especially to those children. If you're into thinking about getting a pet, please adopt a shelter pet. They are the best and um, everybody deserves a forever home. So consider that. And just acts of kindness, you know, love your family, hug your family, be grateful and thankful for what you have. And um, I know I am. And I just want to 
I just I just know that that humanity still is out there and we're going to get through this as a country um, and we're going to stand up and 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 fight for this republic because, as Ben Franklin said, you've got a republic if you can keep it. And I think it's worth fighting for. So Merry Christmas to everyone. Happy New Year. Wishing blessings and happiness to everyone in 2020. And I'll see you on the other side. 